Welcome to Overdrive, a program where we look at the wide and wonderful world of motoring and transport. I'm Errol Smith. In this program, we take a look at the latest news stories with David Campbell. David Brown discusses driving in the snow. Based on our recent experience, there are some things that we weren't expecting. We've got a few reflections from a recent transport conference. And in our discussion session with David Brown and myself, we take a perky look at some quirky news stories including the artist dubbed the Da Vinci of Dirt, who creates works of art on dirty windscreens, as you do. Have a question or a comment? Send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. Now to begin the program, let's have the news. Recently, Volkswagen made an announcement that has managed to please just about everyone. The company is reinventing its famed Combi Microbus and will produce it as an all-electric self-driving van that's intended for road trips, ride-sharing and even small businesses. The VW Combi first debuted nearly 70 years ago and its place in the global cultural landscape was cemented in the 60s when many affectionately nicknamed it the hippie van. It was sold in some parts of the world right up until 2013. Earlier this year, VW introduced a concept vehicle that has now been identified as the new microbus, although the final name has yet to be confirmed. At this stage, it looks as if the new electric combi could be about 370 horsepower, all-wheel drive, and has a range of nearly 300 miles per charge. By 2025, VW expects to offer a complete self-driving system in the van, including a fold-away steering wheel and an augmented reality windshield. Long gone are the days of narrow roof pillars that not only looked good from the outside, but provided optimal visibility from inside the car. In recent times, safety standards have enlarged car pillars to sizes that sometimes make it difficult to check surroundings. Toyota has just lodged a patent that could effectively make a vehicle's A-pillars completely transparent. It's not wizardry, or some James Bond gadget, or even video cameras. It actually involves mirrors. By carefully placing mirrors, Toyota's patented cloaking device makes it possible to bend light around an object, in this case a vehicle pillar, and see the other side of it. It's not clear if and when Toyota will implement the solution, We may not ever see a day when thin, creatively crafted vehicle pillars return, but we suppose at least seeing around these structures is better than nothing. When Google first launched its self-driving car in May of 2014, it didn't have a steering wheel or a brake pedal. California's Department of Motor Vehicles later published guidelines saying that autonomous vehicles had to have both a steering wheel and a brake pedal. Now US federal regulators have overturned this requirement. Recently, Ford has received a patent for a vehicle that can swing both ways. The automaker's designs envisage an autonomous car with a removable steering column and pedals. As part of the patent, Ford has had to install a second frontal airbag in the dashboard, which is only activated when the steering column is removed. In today's digital age, there are many apps available to parents to monitor their children's driving. Apps such as SafeDrive allow you to use an iPhone to monitor your kids' driving habits. Now there's a new app that allows parents to monitor their teen drivers by linking their driving skills with their Spotify music account. 
if the driver tries to touch their mobile phone or speeds while listening to Spotify, the app begins to play, wait for it, their parents' playlist. Driving app technology is now a rapidly growing industry, and many parents are asking their children to download apps that track and score their performance behind the wheel. In the UK, a trial is underway which uses street lighting columns to help charge electric vehicles. Several tech companies are collaborating with the London Borough of Hounslow and supply chain partners. The joint solution uses street lighting columns to provide a plug-in system for electric cars called Simple Socket. The trial involves 40 charging points. Preliminary findings show that 50% of the charging points are used on a daily basis and 25% are used every other day. The advantages of this solution are that streets remain uncluttered, and since there is sufficient energy from new LED streetlights, there is no need to dig up the pavement to install new utilities. The system is designed for low-power, long-stay charging, typically overnight. The system contains a meter that monitors the electricity consumed. It itemizes each charging transaction and bills the user on a monthly basis. Users can monitor their own usage online. All you need to do is find a car park near a streetlight. The idea also has obvious security benefits for the owner. The University of Kyoto is partnering with two of Japan's leading auto parts suppliers to develop a new wood fibre based plastic that can be formed into a strong, lightweight, structural piece of a car. By 2020, they expect to have the first prototype completed. Cellulose nanofiber, or CNF, is composed of the basic structural element of a plant's cell walls. Researchers have been working on ways to make products with it since the 1970s, but a recent breakthrough means that it is now possible to use CNF in lieu of carbon fiber. Carbon fiber and carbofiber reinforced plastics are used in everything from the latest jet fighters, jumbo jets and race cars to an ever-increasing array of new cars. It's used because it's both stronger than steel and much lighter, which helps to reduce fuel consumption and improve performance. This is not the first time wood has been used in structural elements of a car. English sports car company Morgan has been making frames out of wood since the 1930s. We've come a long way since the days of Morgan. Wood may just be the new carbon. And that has been the news. Well, I went down the snow again. Uh, we go down there well, maybe once a year with the family, not to the real heavy snow situation. And we've taken a range of different cars. This year I took a Subaru Outback. And I've got to say, it was just a nice, easy drive. Comfortable, enough room without having to be a big lumbering four-wheel drive. Uh, but there are certain things that happened while we're down there that made me think about driving in the snow and some of the things you should do. Who better to talk about that than our good friend Paul Morell? Paul, you've driven the Outback, I guess? Uh, yes, I have, David. Not a bad little car, is it? It's uh, yeah, it's a very pleasant thing all round. It, it's one of the perfect, if you like, one of the perfect um, compromises. And I don't mean that in a bad way. Hmm. When I say compromise, it, it manages to do a number of things very, very well indeed, and a number of things not quite so well, but 
perfectly acceptably. Yeah, it's a crossover, really, in in the sense that it's it's not a big lumbering four-wheel drive that's come down to being a station wagon. It's probably more a station wagon with all-wheel drive that they've had for a long time and so have made a pretty good system out of it. And it's got a bit of height. It's actually the ground clearance on that is remarkably good, even compared to some big, lumpy four-wheel drives like the Ford Everest. Yes, indeed, you're, you're exactly right, and that's what I was saying about compromise. Mm. Um, it's not a heavyweight SUV that's uncomfortable to drive around town or in traffic. It has ground clearance, which will get you to quite a surprising number of places. Um, on the other hand, of course, it won't take you it won't take you sort of way through into the outback, but that's no. not what you're looking for with a vehicle like that. Not rock hopping. No, it's not a rock hopper, and it, mm. then it's better for it, to be honest. You're listening to Overdrive. But now, going down into the snow, I left it out overnight for a couple of nights while we were down there at least, went and got back in it, waited for the windscreen to clear, get the car warm a little bit, start to drive off, and up came the warning light that said the eyesight, a very excellent thing that helps automatic braking and things like that, road safety sorts of features, wasn't working. Well, of course it wasn't because it couldn't be seen. So it just made me think that there are a range of things you've got to be careful of when you're driving in the snow. The snow is an entirely different driving experience, as you know. It's interesting with eyesight because it is a wonderful system. I had the same problem a couple of times in, in Subarus where it just simply, the, the warning light came up saying eyesight is, is inoperative. And whether it was because there was dirt in front of the, the, the sensor or there was water on the windscreen, I mean, it just seemed to happen for no apparent reason. And that can be quite concerning. I talked to Subaru about that, and they said even things like, uh, if you can't see, eyesight can't see. So things like the sun in going down over the horizon. But of course, what happens there is it also it also deactivates the um, the, the um, adaptive cruise control because without eyesight, it can't measure how far in front the car is. It has a number of effects on your on your driving hmm. ability, if you like, once that goes out. So it's quite a strange thing. And it, it, it is quite concerning the first time it happens, there's no question. Uh, but it's not just Subaru. I mean, that was one of the reasons they think that the Tesla may have crashed, the one that caused the fatality, uh, that uh, mm. it may have had the, the, the white truck with the sun going down in the background. The white truck came at 90 degrees, I believe. So, you know, it, it's not as if it's uh, unique to Subaru, and it's certainly something that we still have to keep in mind as we move towards autonomous vehicles. There's no question, as we've discussed before, autonomous vehicles, the problem will be that so many unexpected or totally impossible to predict events will come up. Hmm. But if they haven't been factored into the program or they haven't been programmed into the car, then the car's only option is to stop. I mean, it doesn't have, it doesn't know how to, it doesn't think. So it can only do what it's programmed to do. Now, down in the snow, antifreeze coolant can make sure your tyres are pumped up and uh, got good tread on them. These are some of the features that are important? Very much so. Um, one of the things with, and, you know, it's one of those things that we keep trying to tell people is that in cold conditions, the tyre pressure is actually reduced because, you know, it's, a, it's just a physical fact that, you know, mm. in cold, the tyre reduces its pressure. And it's interesting because tyres are, we know, we keep saying, tyres are your contact with the with the earth. And you know, a really good high-performance tyre, we talk about coefficient of friction, and friction, in other words, how much grip a tyre will have on the road. And a really good high-performance tyre on tarmac should get pretty close to, to 1.0, right? Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's pretty high. Uh, on a wet road, 
that same tyre will have a coefficient of friction of maybe 0.7, 0.7. So there's a, there's a fairly substantial drop, hence the reason that you need to be more cautious in wet conditions. But on snow, that number actually falls all the way to 0.15, and that starts to become very, very concerning. And on ice, it goes down to even lower, it's 0, uh, 0, 0.08. I mean, you're almost, you're almost uh, well, as you know, when you try and walk on ice, you have no grip at all. So, yeah, I mean, you need to be very, very aware of those things when you're driving on snow. And because we don't have to do it so often in Australia, um, it holds terrors for us that we haven't even thought about. Yes. Yeah, it's it's the unexpected and the unfamiliar that can make it very uh, dangerous. Snow chain should be there. Snow chain should be on your driving wheels. It uh, may sound obvious, but uh, some people have got that wrong. <laughs> oh, many people have. Yes, it's always amusing to see the snow chains on the rear wheels of a, of a front-wheel drive car and, and point out to the owner that it's not having a great deal of effect. There's <laughs> uh, an interesting thing with the diesel fuel. It contains paraffin, and that can be a problem. Yes, because, again, as with the air pressures, um, those things like paraffin particularly has a fairly low um, freezing point. or Zero um, degrees whatever. Celsius. Yeah, freezing yeah. point. Hmm. Yeah, and once it gets cold, of course, it thickens up. You'll know, you know, trying to pour oil in, in cold conditions, and that's the same thing inside the car. The oil gets colder and it thickens up. Hmm. Um, so, yes, it does have an effect, and diesel fuel being oil or paraffin-based will thicken up in cold conditions. Uh, Alpine diesel is available, and usually at service stations leading up to it. Uh, you, obviously, when driving, you should avoid extremities, really, shouldn't you? Fast acceleration or heavy braking. Driving on snow or ice, particularly snow, let's, let's leave ice out of it because ice is almost impossible. Uh, driving on snow just it just exaggerates, if you like, what should be good driving habits anyway, that everything should be done smoothly and, mm. you know, no, no sudden braking, no sudden accelerating, no sudden turning. So everything happens progressively rather than urgently. And that, you know, that's good advice at any driving. Mm. But it's even more important on snow, of course. You should lift your wipers from the windscreen if you park it for an extended period, obviously not to freeze them onto the glass. But another one is don't leave the handbrake on, so it's been recommended in some cases. Moisture in the yes. mechanism can freeze and it can cause the handbrake to be frozen in the engaged position. I hadn't thought of that one. No, that's one, and it used to be, it used to be the rule of thumb that you didn't lock the doors either for exactly the same reason. Um, that the, the locking mechanisms would freeze and you couldn't get into the car. Oh, OK. I think we've got a bit better since then. I hope we have. I hope we have. I don't think I want to be leaving my, cars at, my car at perisher unlocked in the car park. But uh, No. Now, the other one is, I believe <laughs> it's even a law that you should remove all the snow from the vehicle. Uh, there can be fines and loss of demerit points uh, for leaving snow on the roof of your vehicle. Now, the danger of that is twofold. One is, if you drive off and it flies off, it could hit another motorist or car or a pedestrian. Yes. The other thing yep. is that if you brake heavily, it can get, slip over and go onto your windscreen and remove your visibility. I, again, I hadn't really thought. I saw, I saw a, a car driving down almost as a badge of honour with a whole pile of snow mm. all over it. Uh, in reality, he's causing potential danger both to others and to himself. And to himself, yes. I didn't, I didn't know about the law, I must be honest, but then there are so many road rules now, we, none of us know them all. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it is common sense. Um, I know it's, it's inconvenient and it's difficult, but it is common sense. And the other thing is, too, I mean, a lot of people in the, in the rush to get away or whatever it is will clean themselves a sort of a, a, a little hole to look through on the windscreen. No, not very sensible at all. You yes. really do need to make sure that windscreen is clear all the way across. It doesn't take long for the car to get a bit of warmth into it, even if the temperature gauge isn't showing 
you know, typically the average uh, one it gets to, I, I found fairly soon it started to do it, yet that little five minutes, maybe most five minutes, are really time just to calm down, make sure everything's clear, and of course you're not going to be able to get your windscreen washers to wash the stuff off because they'll be frozen. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... it's you know, and of course, that that standard old warning from from way way back, almost I think from the dawn of time, was you know never try and clean the windscreen with a warm with warm water. Paul, lovely to talk to you. Thank you again for your time. I know you've just back from holidays, and it was great to catch up with you. Lovely to talk to you too, David. And that's Paul Morell, who's a motoring journalist of many years' experience, talking about the Subaru Outback and also driving in the snow. This is Overdrive across Australia. At the recent Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management National Conference held in Melbourne, the National President of the AITPM, Andrew Leadham, noted that later that day at another venue, the Most Livable City in the World award would be announced, and that Melbourne, which had been top of the list for the last four years, was hoping to do the same again. Keynote speaker Brent Tadarian from Canada then added to his prepared speech to give some perspective to these awards. I think you invited me here because you just wanted someone from Vancouver to be here when the announcement about the most livable city came out. I didn't realize that at the time, but I think I'm smelling a rat. (laughs) Even if you believe in rankings, which I don't, and especially rankings for that purpose, HR rankings for the purposes of figuring out hardship allowances for people that are moving around the world, even if you do, there are four such rankings, and the only city in the world that is at the top of all four rankings. Melbourne's only at the top of one. You guys are kind of cherry-picking. You're cherry-picking the same way Vancouver did when Vancouver was at the top of that ranking. The only ranking uh, city that's at the top of all four is Vienna, so all hail Vienna. You're not the most livable city in the world because you are still predominantly, at a city-regional scale, a car-dependent city. And you cannot be the most livable city in the world if you are a car-dependent city. As a matter of fact, what I've often said is if you're not the most walkable city in the world, you're not the most livable city in the world, because those two things are fundamentally connected. You're listening to Overdrive. And at the end of the program this week, let's talk some unusual news stories. And to join me in doing that is Errol Smith. Hey, Errol. Hello, David. Ephemeral. That means something that exists or is used or enjoyed for only a short time, or it's something that you originally expected to only have short-term usefulness of popularity, but it has lasted for a long time, like Mickey Mouse ephemeral. I would have thought just cheap and cheerful stuff, but has lasted a long time. But the, the word, in terms of only being around for a short time, applies to a bit of artwork that appeared in Townsville, a Queensland's city biennial strand ephemeral. Fair, I suppose you'd call it. And what happens is a guy, he's actually an American, Scott Wade, comes over and takes the very dirty windows of the back of cars and does artwork on them. They're pretty clever, pretty skillful work, don't you think, Errol? Yeah, it's uh, quite amazing what he's what he's doing, and it, it, it's all with muck. Yeah. It certainly beats the old wash me type of humour yes. that we try to put into it. Yeah, well, I, I wondered if he started with wash me and thought that, you know, he needed to get away from that and to something a little bit more intelligent. He does things like wallabies and kangaroos and big bulls with horns and 
and things like uh, wind farms in the back of them. I mean, it's not uh, you know, it's not your stick figure we're talking here. No, no, he's he's quite talented, really. And given that you can't really afford to make a mistake when you're br- uh, no. brushing away the dirt, you can't fix it. No, well, of course, if you watch a painter, they often over go over something many many times, yeah. uh, just to get it right. Yeah. So it's um, once you've taken away some dirt and made it darker, uh, it's not getting lighter again. He does admit to occasionally faking natural dirt build-up. Oh, okay. Because he, he says it's preferable to have a car that's been getting naturally dirty for weeks, but he will occasionally use some sort of oil and some clay dust. Oh, oil. Yes. That, 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 ho- that puts a whole new meaning to it. That becomes vandalism, doesn't it? <laughs> The, the thing about not being able to go back and correct much, I think, means that his perspective must be very, very clever, hmm. that I would draw a person and find that one arm is too long in my nothing much better than a stick figure, but he would have to have that right. I'm looking at the one with the two, is it wallabies? And, I mean, they really are to very good proportion. Yeah, yeah he's really got an, an eye for, for getting the proportions right, and it's... It must be difficult because his surface is not flat. It's a you know it's a window, okay. it's yeah. a car window, so it's curved in in both dimensions. Ah. So not only does he have to sort of not be able to make a mistake, but he's got to allow for that the curvature of his canvas. My heritage goes back to is it Fred Stubbs who used to draw paint? He was a very renowned painter of horses. I think from the eighteen hundreds. I could be wrong. Clearly, I haven't looked up my heritage too much. My mother's maiden name was Stubbs, and he was renowned for drawing horses' heads too small, really, when you look at them. And yet here's a guy who does it in the most ephemeral way, yet has great accuracy. I'm not comparing him to Fred Stubbs, but, well, to my mind, I, I probably get as much out of it. It's an interesting form of art because, as you say, it is sort of ephemeral because he can put all this effort into something and then it'll rain. Is there a tendency that if he's done it on your car, I think he he actually gets, you know, hires cars and things to do it. I'm I'm Mm. not sure he sort of goes up and does it in the middle of the night on your car. But if he did do it on your car, would you be hesitant to wash it? Absolutely. Is there a dangerous issue there? Or or would you jump at the idea of selling the car? It might be worth more. <laughs> it could well depends. Some some of the wrecks that that are on the beach in some of these photos, uh, I think you might be right. I think it might be adding value. Although it's an interesting take that modern art is so varied now that when the dirty cars were originally dumped on the beach, people still thought it was part of an installation before the guy had actually started on. <laughs> well, the one that their picture is here with him in an orange shirt and a a sort of cricket umpire's hat is on the back of a Daewoo car loss, not one of the world's great cars. Yes, it dates it a little bit. You can't buy a Daewoo in Australia anymore. And there's some advertising all hours towing on the back of it. So I (laughs) guess it might not have been the car that was actually selling. And the the final point that might put the nail in the coffin is that the windscreen wiper on the back of it is hanging down. Yeah, I think Uh, think that might be just just in case someone accidentally bumps the uh, the stalk inside and makes it... Make it wipe all his work away. <laughs> would would you hate if someone did that when you were about ninety percent through? Yeah, yes, I think so. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, it, apparently it almost went horribly wrong when the ground staff thought they ought to give the cars a good wash just before the show. <laughs> I noticed the one with the bull, big horns, and the 
other you know, wind farm uh, picture on it as well, that actually has a very good windscreen wiper on it. So perhaps that was a, he was getting brave at that stage. Yeah, yeah, or he just disconnected the battery just in case. Errol, are you down with the fairies? Uh, well, some people might say I am, David, but... Um the fairies could be there in in a road called the N22, which is a, it would ordinarily be a boring road in Ireland's southwest, except that it's had some subsidence problems since construction, and the blame is being put on not on the builders or engineers, but fairies. Even the local politician Danny Halley Ray says that the problems are due to the numerous fairy forts in the area, and that. And I quote, anyone that tampered with them back over the years paid a high price and had bad luck. I'm sorry, I see fairies, which I believe derive from the word enchanted, fairy or so, and applied to something like a fairy knight, as in other words, K-N-I-G-H-T, in other words, an enchanted knight or a fairy queen. So it had that aspect of it that I thought was nice, mystical, albeit, but certainly well-intended. He seems to be thinking that they're, they're gremlins, poltergeist, phantoms, apparitions. Yes. Well, if you rub them wrong, the wrong way, then they're, you know, it's not, not good for you. Well, you do, you're losing the luck of the Irish in, in that case. I understood that a fairy was somewhere between heaven and hell, but not accounted to either of them. Oh, so it could go either way. <laughs> ah, ah, that's... Malevolent? Malevolent, that's the word. I just... <laughs> Uh, I, I never thought of them as that, but just so clearly, though, we're talking now about fairy forts. So it's not the fairies themselves, it's construction issues. Bad planning and cheap construction. Yes. That's the issue, isn't it? That yes. if that they have somehow affected the subsoil, the strata, the foundations, which is having a long-term effect. Yes, we're, we're joking about these fairy forts, but they're actually a real thing in, uh, in Ireland and, and some in, in Britain. Yes. And some of them are quite... Quite large. I mean, there's you know, hundreds of metres across these sort of um, circular mounds that people have made, you know, eons ago to protect their their tomb or their their fort, or whatever. So, yeah, it, it was a real structure. Uh, it, hmm. it was part and parcel of how some people adjusted the land to suit their need. Although I believe farmers and that have been known to bulldoze them. And thus the spiritual aspect of it, the spirit yes. aspect of it comes into it. Yes, that's where, where they think they're upsetting the, the fairies and that's all going wrong. I'll just quickly say I have heard of politicians making a huge number of excuses to conspiracy theory as the classic example of that. Now they might well be able to bring mysticism into it. For heaven's sake, don't tell Donald Trump. I'll see you next week, Errol. Thanks no, for your time. David will be off with the fairies then too. Off with the fairies. And that was Errol Smith, and we were talking some quirky news. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Brown, David Campbell, Paul Murrell and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm Errol Smith. Thanks for listening. <laughs>